God, you're good, and you are great, and you are greatly to be praised, and that you are worthy of all uh, praise and honor and glory. And uh, God, I thank you for the promises that we just sang. I thank you, God, that um, that you created us to to be able to sing and to um, to stir our emotions with song, and particularly the words of the songs. And uh, God, I thank you that you will uh, return to uh, make all things right, to recreate the world. And God, I thank you that our hope is not in this world, but our hope is in uh, a good and loving God uh, who uh, loved us, so loved us that you gave your only begotten Son, and that you will, you will love us until the end, that you will carry us all the way through. And one day you will dwell with us in a world where there's no more sin, there's no more suffering, and there's no more death. So God, we long for that time to be with you as your people forever. In the meantime, God, I thank you that you are with us through your spirit. I thank you that you are at the right hand of the Father, Lord Jesus, um, interceding for us even this very moment. And I thank you that you care uh, not only for, uh, uh, you care for our every need, our every want, um, our, our sorrows, our trials. And we're just grateful of that. So, God, would you, uh, I'm a beggar in need of grace this morning, and I pray, God, that I would stand behind your word. I bring no offense to it. I pray, Spirit of God, that you would do your work in transforming us this morning from one degree of glory to another. And God's people, God's people said, amen. So, uh, good morning. Happy Palm Sunday to you all. Um, we are, I've titled this sermon, um, He Loves Us to the End, and um, I love this time of year. Um, it really, it, it, I guess it shouldn't be different than any other time of year, but it, it forces me to uh, contemplate um, the love of Christ and, um, and what was accomplished to secure uh, my uh, salvation, my standing um, in God's family. And my prayer for us this morning is that we would increase in our understanding of Jesus' compassion and increase in our understanding that he not only loved us, but that he will love you to the end. And that we would further be, we'd be further compelled to grab a hold of the keys of heaven that uh, Jason taught us on last week, that we'd, we'd be compelled to grab a hold of the kings of heaven and declare the good news of Jesus Christ, and don't miss this, while demonstrating this declaration with compassion and warm hearts towards others. You know, this has been, um, as the Lord always does, he's, he's always working, and, um, and his word is a mirror, and whenever we approach his word, whenever we teach his word, it, uh, I, I pray that God would, like, encourage me, remind me of who he is and who I am, but also convict me of sin, and, um, and he's done that this week as well, and um, as I had a, uh, I, I serve um, as, as one of the pastors here on what we call the compassion team at Windsor Community Church. And the Compassion Team is, is a group of dear people that manages um, a fund called the Helping Hand Fund and also helps us um, serve those who are in need, both in the body and those whom we're in relationship with outside the body, uh, to, to serve their temporal needs, but to also um, uh, pray that God will give us the opportunity to share the only good news that will meet their eternal need. 
And uh, what I've learned about myself is that, um, and I didn't, I knew this before this encounter with the, with the compassion team a couple weeks ago or a couple days ago, but I have an end to my compassion and love for others. I have an end. My, my love does not um, continue. Um, it's, it's conditional at times. And unfortunately, all too often, I resonate with Popeye. You've heard me say this before, that there's times where I can only stand so much and I can't stand no more. I have an end to my compassion and love. Um, do I want people to come to saving faith in Jesus? Absolutely. Uh, do, I, do I love people the way Jesus did? Do I love present-day tax collectors showing compassion to the hurting, sorrowful, and broken with no strings attached? Not always. I do want the best for everybody. Certainly, I want to see people come to saving faith. But am I willing? Are you willing to enter into the mess of other people and stay in that mess for the long haul. Thankfully, in, my, in the midst of my shortcomings and my unfaithfulness, Jesus is always faithful. That Jesus' love for his own and his compassion for all of humanity has no end. Listen to how the psalmist described God's attitude towards his people, who, mind you, are not always easy to love. Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The New Living Translation says that God is filled with steadfast love and faithfulness. It's that when, when God is poked, what comes out of him most naturally is loving compassion and faithfulness. Jesus condescended into our mess. He loved and served all who he came in contact with along the way. And he completed his mission by loving his own until the end, to his last breath. Until the end and forevermore, when we baptize people, we say, now walk in newness of life until the end and forevermore. But you know, even when we're unfaithful to that call, when we don't, when we don't walk in newness of life until the end forevermore, that he will love us until the end and forevermore with no strings attached when we already belong to him. You see, it's, it's impossible for the love-motivated, compassionate heart of Christ to be exaggerated or over-celebrated. I feel like in our circles, um, we want to say, yeah, God is loving. God is actually love, but then we want to quickly balance it with it. Like, yeah, he's just and he's holy. Those things are true, but what, God, what, what pours out of God most naturally is his love for his own. Um, someone once said that God is lopsidedly loving. Yes, he is a God um, who is, uh, his, his character can be defined in many different ways. He's like a diamond. When you look at it from different angles, you see the beauty of it uh, from different angles. But he is lopsidedly loving. His most natural instinct is to move toward sin and suffering. To move toward it. Even yours today. That if you know Jesus Christ and you are caught in sin, his, his love is no less for you. Like he, he hates to sin. I, I love how Gavin Ortland says it in his book, um, um, Meek and Lowly? Lowly and Meek. Maybe you read that book? Gentle lowly, thank you very much. He says this. He says it's like a father who has a son who has cancer. He loves his son, but he, but he hates the cancer that is killing his son. 
That's Jesus' attitude towards us when we are sinning. Thomas Goodwin says this, Christ is love covered in flesh. And if you know Jesus, as Henry Blackaby said, that you are both the object of his love and compassion, and you're also the instrument of his love and compassion. And we're going to talk a lot about that this morning. Not only are you the object of his love and compassion, you are the instrument of his love and compassion to others. I pray that you'd be encouraged and compelled to to these three following truths that we're going to start with and we're actually going to end with. That Jesus loves you to the end. Number two, we are to weep for others. And number three, our weeping should move us to action. The setting for today's passage takes place approximately five days before Jesus' crucifixion and some 33 years after his virgin birth. God incarnate was on a mission to seek and save the lost. Last week we saw Matthew describe this mission as Jesus building his church, which is the result of seeking and saving the lost. The cornerstone of this mission to build his church was his death and resurrection. He came to die so that dead hearts might have life. Jesus wasn't drafted. He wasn't coerced into this death mission. He chose it out of love for you and I, you and me. It was no accident, and nobody took his life from him. He knowingly, willingly, might I say, he joyfully subjected himself to the cross to bear the sin for God's elect. Your every sin. He bore it all. And in bearing our sins, the just wrath of God was justified as he, took, as he took God's just punishment upon himself. His mission would be accomplished through suffering and death, not power and judgment. He will come back one day to judge the living and the dead, but he came the first time through suffering and death with grace and mercy. And he came not to conquer our temporal enemies, but to conquer the enemies of Satan and sin. Not to conquer the political enemies of the Jews. His goal was not to make the nation of Israel great again, but to save sinners by grace. And toward the end of his life, in the months leading up to the Holy Week, Jesus told his closest disciples several different times that he was, in fact, the promised Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, the son of David, who would sit on David's throne. And one of those times was in Matthew 16 that Jason covered last week. I'm going to read verses 13 through 17 and verse 20, so because it, it'll, it'll lead us into our discussion today. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? The son of man was his favorite description of himself. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then verse 20, then Jesus strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Jesus didn't keep it a secret because he was afraid to die or he wanted to avoid the inevitable. It was simply not time yet for him to lay his life down. I would imagine if I was one of the disciples 
And Jesus said that I'm the anointed one. I'm the one that they've been waiting for for generation after generation for over a thousand years. I'd be a little bit giddy. He's my mentor. He's my friend. Maybe I'll get to serve in his cabinet some way as he's ruling over Jerusalem. What would this mean for them, the disciples? However, Jesus poured cold water on that in a hurry. He told these same disciples, who he had just told that he was the king, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, that he, he, he told them next that he must die. Wait, what? You just told us that you're the long-awaited Messiah or Christ. Jesus, you have a following because of your great teaching and your healing and your feeding the hungry and raising the dead. The people are ready to crown you king. You will not surely die. What about us? What about our national enemies? Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. If you've given yourself permission to write in your Bible, I would circle or underline, must go to Jerusalem. That he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. And Peter, you got to love Peter, took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So what are the things of God? The things of God are grace and mercy and sacrifice. The things of man are power and comfort. It's always been that way since the garden, that the things that we want, the things that we surround ourselves with, are power and comfort. Jesus must go. He said, I must go to Jerusalem. He can't help himself. He's full of mercy, full of grace. He's motivated, motivated by love, and he must go to Jerusalem to make the ultimate sacrifice. In Luke's same account in 951, we're told that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, meaning this was his primary goal. There was nothing that was going to stop him. He set his face towards Jerusalem. And on his journey to Jerusalem to fulfill his mission, he saw and genuinely cared for people in ways that made people want to know him and follow him. This is so important because we can lose the heart of Jesus. We know he has a mission. We know that we are recipients of that mission. But along the way, he didn't have blinders on. He had his blinders off. And on his way to Jerusalem, he encountered people intentionally. People that were sick, people that were blind, lepers. He fed. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He didn't have to do any of that, that, that. He had a mission to seek and save the lost. But the very heart of Jesus is a heart of compassion and love, and he doesn't ignore the demonstration of the gospel just to go and declare it. He cared about all suffering, especially eternal suffering, but he cared about all suffering. 
And this is super instructive for us today at Windsor Community Church as we often and rightly preach the importance and the priority of declaring or proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only news that can set the captives free. And we also encourage praying for those with no hope. Furthermore, we, pr- we, we encourage praying for one another that we have boldness, boldness, excuse me, with the declaration of the gospel. Church family, on our way, on our way to planting a church in Greeley, on the way for the Greeley church, people going to Greeley, on our way to declare the gospel and make disciples. Do you see the hurting? Do you see the brokenhearted? Do you see the downcast and the oppressed and move towards them with no strings attached? Even if they reject your gospel, are you willing to love them and serve them and bind their wounds and feed them and house them and close them and adopt them? This is the heart of Jesus. Yes, Jesus said, I must go to Jerusalem. He couldn't help himself. He was driven by love. He had to do the only work that could satisfy the justice of a holy God. And that was to lay down his perfect life for all who would trust in his work for the forgiveness of their sins. But don't miss this. Along the way, along the way, he intentionally encountered and cared for the hurting and the sick and the oppressed. All throughout Scripture, we're instructed to walk as Jesus walked. The second great commandment is to love others as we love ourselves. And if we fully embody the heart of Christ, we too will not only declare the gospel, but demonstrate the gospel through acts of compassion and service to those God has sovereignly placed in our path. So the question is, is who has God sovereignly placed in your path? Who has God sovereignly placed in your path? We need to be reminded that we're both the object and instruments of God's grace and mercy. By God's grace through faith, we're saved from the power and penalty of our sins, but we're also saved unto the mission of Christ. As objects of His grace and mercy and love, we're now instruments of the same grace, mercy, and love to not only declare it, but demonstrate it through sacrificial love and sacrifice and service. Meanwhile, back to the passage. Jesus, the time had come for Jesus to lay down his life, to complete his mission. It was a week or so before the Passover, and Jesus, the Lamb of God, was heading um, right into the place and to the people who wanted him arrested and dead. He knew it. He was headed towards it. He arrived not in power, not with a sword in his hand, but in weakness, with his hands wide open to anyone who would come to him. I love how it's described in John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That Jesus loves to the end. Matthew 21, 1 through 9. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, 
When Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, you shall, you shall say, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. They took place to fulfill what was spoken to the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, which is Israel, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Matthew is quoting Zechariah 9.9 here. And he's quoting Zechariah 9.9 to awaken his readers to the reality that Jesus was not just a good man, but that he was a long-awaited king and Messiah from the line of David. You see, the people of Israel grew up hearing stories of King David um, over a thousand years earlier. And King David's son, Solomon, rode his father's colt into Jerusalem as he was received as the Lord's anointed ruler over them. And from that point forward, the cult became a symbol of royal coronation, by extension a symbol of being under God's caring protection from their enemies. And what was happening here? Jesus was riding the same route on the same type of animal King Solomon had ridden to his coronation. And this struck a chord with the Jewish people. Jesus looked like a king, not because of his robe, not because of a crown, not because of a scepter, but because of the memory it triggered in his disciples. Verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, it, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Most people that were lining the streets, putting their coats down and their palm branches down, singing Hosanna to God in the highest, were following him because of the miracles that he did. They wanted more comfort and power. They witnessed him raising Lazarus. And many started suspecting that he was the coming king that he had longed for, and they felt compelled to praise him. You remember in the past when Jesus, when people identified, when, when, uh, when Jesus, when people identified Jesus as the anointed one, what would he tell them? It's not my time. Don't, don't, tell, don't tell anybody. This was different. When the people shouted their praises, calling Jesus their king, he said nothing to quiet them, knowing that the more that they praised him, the surer his death sentence would come. Some spread their coats on the road, and those without coats tore off palm branches to lay across the path to create a more dignified street to welcome the arrival of the one who might be able to rescue them from the Roman oppression. The people shouted the hope of their hearts as he passed, Hosanna, the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Hosanna is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word, which means, us, which means save us, we pray. This, along with the uh, title, the messianic title, son of David, made it clear that the crowd was acknowledging Christ's messianic claim, and he didn't quiet him. He didn't quiet them. He just received it. He had come to complete his mission. Even though the Jewish people lying in the streets had great insight that he was the Messiah, that he was the anointed one, they had great misunderstanding. 
They were correct in identifying Jesus as the son of David who comes in the name of the Lord, the long-awaited ruler of Israel, the fulfillment of all of God's promises. But their great misunderstanding was that they would enter Jerusalem and by his mighty works, that he would enter Jerusalem, and by his mighty works, he would take his throne and he would make, he would make Israel free from the tyranny and the oppression of his national enemies. Jesus never promised that. It wasn't going to be that way. He would take his throne, but it would be through his voluntary suffering and death that he would receive his crown. He didn't come to defeat our temporal enemies, but once again our mortal enemies of Satan and sin and death. Jesus, Jesus was, not, was not only resolute to accomplish his mission, but along the way he had, comp he had compassion for all people he encountered. Listen to this. Amazingly, he had compassion and great sorrow even for those who would reject his message. That kind of blows my mind. That Jesus, the sovereign one, has compassion and sorrow for those who are going to reject his message. After receiving the praise of those who acknowledge him as their king, the humble sovereign savior, riding on a donkey, crested the hill that overlooked the city of Jerusalem and was suddenly moved to tears. Matthew 23, 37 through 39. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we can get a little bit more clarity about what Jesus is talking about from Luke's account in Luke 19, 41 through 42, where Luke says this about the same situation. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would, you, would that you, even you, had known on this day that things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. You see, Jesus knowingly, willingly, and joyfully set his face toward Jerusalem to ultimately fulfill his mission to build his church by seeking and saving the lost. And he is sovereign over all who he determines to save. Don't miss that. He, he's still sovereign. He's sovereign over all who are going to be saved. Yet he weeps because people who have gathered for the Passover in Jerusalem were not willing to come to him. Even though the people lined the streets um, just a few hours earlier and cried out to Jesus, save us, we pray, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they saw him as their political savior, one who would conquer their temporal enemies and restore Israel to national prominence. You see, the one who came to bring peace Bring them peace with God is upon them, and they're missing it. In the same way that they, re they rejected and disbelieved God's prophets or messengers in the Old Testament, they only wanted a Savior who could bring them comfort and power. Is that the type of Savior you want? Jesus didn't promise us comfort and power. He promised us an abundant life. And that abundant life comes through submitting to him and sacrificing, loving the Lord God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And what? Loving our neighbor as ourself. 
That sums up all the commandments. It's clear to me that Jesus is weeping not only because of what he knows will happen to the Jewish people in 70 AD when their city and all that's in it is destroyed, but he's weeping primarily because they won't come to him. And he's weeping because he knows that when they don't come to him, it means eternal separation and torment. And make no mistake, Jesus is not just shedding a tear here, an obligatory tear here. He's literally engaged in convulsive sobbing. That's the root of the word weep. It's intense lamenting over the unrepentant people of Jerusalem. This is the heart of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. It's the, it's the very heart of God. And what he didn't do is he didn't stand on that hill with his arms crossed, knowing that people wouldn't come to him and say they're going to get what they deserve. It serves them right. Or I'll get even with them one day. He weeps over the sinful hearts of his executioners, the ones who had put him to death. He's weeping because he knows their future. He's weeping because of what they're missing. Peace and lasting peace with God who wants to gather them as children. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus is not an indifferent Calvinist whose theology is so suffocated that he can't breathe, see, or be moved. He's weeping over lost people. He's weeping over judgment and disaster. Please don't lift your heads up too quickly from this passage and miss the king's heart. Think and ask yourself, how often have I wept over the lost? Jesus' patience, love, and emotion are so convicting and instructive to me. He had every right to bring immediate judgment upon the people in Jerusalem for the rejection of him. him. However, he pauses over the city, and in plain view, he weeps. Jesus came not to destroy, but to save. And there's so much in this for you and me today. Jesus is still building his church, and he'll continue to do so. The, 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 the door of the ark is open, but one day the, the, the downpour of his judgment is going to come. And he's building his church today through the declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But along the way, but along the way with the compassion and love of Jesus, we're to demonstrate the gospel by serving and loving others that he has providentially put into our path with no strings attached. Let me summarize. Let me close by summarizing three encouragements that we started with. Number one, Jesus will love you to the end. He'll love you to the end. He loved you so much that Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, who knew no sin, became your sin so that you might become the righteousness of Christ. He went all the way to the cross to secure your salvation. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, He's not an indifferent Savior wondering if you'll come. His arms are wide open, and he's beckoning you to come. Going to the cross is what he did. 
And you might ask, what is he doing now to love you to the end? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And he's interceding for you by name. Hebrews 7, 22-25 bring, makes this clear. That Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. He's, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Is that a humbling thought, that Jesus lives to make intercession for you by name? The second encouragement, that we would weep for others. Jesus is tenderly moved. He feels the sorrow of any and all situations. He cares about all suffering, and especially eternal suffering. Jesus not only wept for those who didn't know him, but you remember the account of Lazarus? When Jesus uh, uh, came to the town where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived, and Jesus arrived knowing that Lazarus had already died. Jesus also arrived knowing that he would raise Lazarus from the dead. But when he encountered Mary and Martha, and he saw their sorrow and pain, that they had lost their brother, what did Jesus do? He wept. He wept. And this is instructive and something to long and pray for. This doesn't mean that we don't have an inner peace that God is in control and that God's wise purposes will come to pass, but it doesn't mean that we don't cry and lament. In fact, to the contrary, I appeal to you here to pray that God would give you tears. There's so much pain in the world. There's so much suffering um, that is far from you. All over the world. And there's so much suffering near to us. All you've got to do is read a realm post. Or read the prayer requests from this weekend. There's so many people that are headed towards a hopeless eternity. Pray that God would help you be tenderly moved. The heart of Jesus sees brokenness and sin and lost people, and he weeps. Jesus, the sovereign one, did not just see the condition of man's heart. He wept over the condition of man's heart. And if you haven't shed any tears for those who have rejected Jesus as the only way to salvation, it might mean that you and me are pretty wrapped up in ourselves and our own life to care. So let's repent of our hardness of heart and let's ask God to give us a heart that is tenderly moved to lament over those who have yet to come to Christ. So a few questions. Who is causing you to weep? Who or what is causing you to weep? Friends, family, neighbors who do not yet know Jesus, injustice of all kinds, the plight of the defenseless and the marginalized. And finally, my prayer is that our weeping would move us to action. 
Yes, weep, but pray that the Lord would move our weeping to action. Our response should be to, to move with Jesus, to be in step with the Spirit, whatever it costs, toward the needs of others, eternal and temporal, denying ourselves the comforts and the securities and the ease of avoiding other people's pain. I don't know about you, but sometimes if I just don't know about it, I'm better off. The gospel commands this. Jesus' tears were not just the tender moving of the emotions. They were the tears of a man motivated by his love to deny himself and literally pick up his cross. Jesus entered Jerusalem to die. He laid down his comfort and his power and his very life for you and me. This too is the way that we follow Jesus. We see those who are like sheep without a shepherd and we go to them with the good news, declaring the good news. And along the way, along the way we see those who are vulnerable. We see injustice. We see those who are sick, homeless, hungry. We see the orphaned. And we demonstrate the gospel by selflessly serving them with no strings attached. And we can do that, just a few helpful suggestions, by serving refugees, serving the homeless, the impoverished, by foster care, adoption, and certainly the Pregnancy Resource Center. Don't operate with guilt. Our God is a God of proximity. Where has He placed you? Who has He given you a heart for? Who must you serve? Where must you go? Remember, brothers and sisters, that we are not only an object of God's never-ending compassion and love, but we are instruments of His never-ending compassion and love. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you that we are the apple of your eye that we are the object of your grace and mercy and compassion and love. And we see that most clearly through your condescension to become, to become flesh, to become human, and to see that you lived the perfect life. You were tempted in every way as we were, but you did not sin. And we see that you set your face towards Jerusalem, that you had to go there because of your love for the elect. And that you willingly laid your life down. Nobody took it from you. And you bore our sins. That you who knew no sin became our sin, that we might become the righteousness of Christ. And we thank you that, that you drank the cup of judgment dry. That there's no leftover wrath for us, your children. And God, I thank you that we are not only the object of your grace and mercy and love, but as once we've been redeemed, we are now instruments of your grace and mercy and love. So God, by the power of the Spirit, compelled by your love as we go out to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
the only news that can set the captives free. God, I pray that along the way that you would enlarge our hearts for not only the lost, but the marginalized, the oppressed, the lonely, the sick, the hungry, the hurting, whether they're in Christ or out of Christ. And God, I pray that you'd move us to tears and that those tears, by the power of the Spirit, compelled by your love, would move us to action for your glory and for the good of fellow image bearers. It's in Jesus' name we pray.